Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 271. Today's big Bible questions, how can Christians be strengthened by weakness, and why does God allow Satan's attacks? Well, happy Wednesday, dear friends. Our Bible chapters for today are 2 Samuel 19, Psalm 74, Ezekiel 26, and our focus passage, which is 2 Corinthians 12. Now, I told you yesterday that I grew up on British and Japanese TV for whatever reason, and one of my all-time favorite shows is a British comedy called Blackadder. Now, Blackadder, in each of his incarnations, is a clever, scheming, ambitious, and extremely sarcastic man, and Baldrick is his dim-witted servant, therefore comic relief for the most part. At one point, Blackadder asks Baldrick, Baldrick, do you have any idea what irony is? Baldrick's reply, yes, it's like goldy and bronzy, only it's made out of iron. Well, that's close, Baldrick, but no cigar. As a wannabe writer, I like both irony and paradox, but they don't both mean the same thing. Irony is a state of being or circumstance that seems contrary to what one expects and is often amusing or, you know, at least surprising as a result. For instance, it is ironic that one of the most lethal guns in all of history, the Gatling gun, was not invented by an engineer or an arms manufacturer or a military man, but a medical doctor who had taken the Hippocratic Oath. His name was Dr. Richard Gatling. It's further ironic and also a bit naive that Dr. Gatling invented the gun with the stated purpose of ending wars and battles more quickly and hopefully leading to more peace rather than war. Of his invention, he says, It occurred to me that if I could invent a machine, a gun, which could by its rapidity of fire enable one man to do as much battle duty as a hundred, that it would, to a large extent, supersede the necessity of large armies, and consequently, exposure to battle and disease would be greatly diminished. A naive but noble sentiment. This is irony because his invention did not shorten wars at all, but was simply part of an ever-increasing arms race that led to greater and greater lethal outcomes. It's ironically unexpected also for a doctor to have such a prominent place in the history of arms manufacturing. Now, a paradox, on the other hand, is a statement that is contradictory, but may also be sort of true in some ways. A good example of a paradox is the self-effacing statement of Socrates, who says, I know one thing, and that is that I know nothing. You can see both the truth of such a statement and the self-contradictory nature of it also. Closely related to a paradox is an oxymoron, which is a self-contradictory phrase that illustrates a point or somehow points to a paradox. Examples of oxymorons include the word sophomore, which means wise fool, or the phrase she was terribly beautiful, And this wonderful scene from Romeo and Juliet, Act 1, Scene 1, which includes like 12 or 13 oxymorons in one character's line of dialogue. Oh, brawling love. Oh, loving hate. Oh, anything of nothing first create. Oh, heavy lightness, serious vanity, misshapen chaos of well-seeming forms, feather of lead, bright smoke, cold fire, sick health. Still waking sleep, that is not what it is. This love I feel I, that feel no love in this. A final example of oxymoron is the word itself. Oxy means sharp or keen, and moron means dull or stupid. 
So thank you for joining us today for the Grammar Corner podcast. Hope to see you Grammar Jammers back here tomorrow when we talk about adverbs that don't end in L-Y. Okay, that actually sounds like a bit of a scary podcast. We'll leave it to the Grammar Girl. Today's focus passage, though, does give us a truth that contains some level of irony, paradox, and oxymoron all, but it's so profound that it's kind of elevated above those three categories into sort of a category of its own. The truth that we are going to be speaking about today is derived from Paul's very simple and yet profoundly puzzling statement, when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, Paul, (laughs) that doesn't make a lot of sense at all. So let's go read our passage, and as we do, we're going to ponder the meaning of that whole when I am strength, then I am, when I am weak, then I am strong kind of thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Boasting is necessary, it's not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool, because I would be telling the truth. But I will spare you, so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong." I've been a fool. You forced it on me. You ought to have commended me, since I am not in any way inferior to those super-apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you, including signs and wonders and miracles. So in what way are you worse off than the other churches, except that I personally did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. Look, I am ready to come to you for this third time. I will not burden you, since I am not seeking what is yours, but you. For children ought not to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Now granted, I did not burden you, yet, sly as I am, I took you in by deceit. Did I take advantage of you any... By any of those I sent you, I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? Didn't we walk in the same spirit and in the same footsteps? Have you been thinking all along that we were defending ourselves to you? No. In the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ, and everything, dear friends, is for building you up. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want, and you may not find me to be what you want. Perhaps there will be quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence, and I will grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented of the moral impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they practiced. So, as we've discussed in a previous episode on the power of weakness, which I have uh, linked for you if you want to look it up on the BibleReadingPodcast.com. That's BibleReadingPodcast.com. 
There's probably no Bible truth that I have struggled with more than the one we are presented with today, that our greatest times of spiritual strength will often, or perhaps even always, be when we are at our weakest. So it's worth rereading and listening to verses 9 and 10, which says, God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I can tell you that I have seen this truth borne out in my life. When I am strong in the flesh, uh, or in myself, I guess, confident, I guess, is a good word for it, feeling good, feeling like I'm able to run through walls, so to speak, I often find that my pride and confidence end up causing me trouble, causing a fall. Further, my strength, even at its absolute maximum, is not adequate to perform any meaningful spiritual thing. I can't save anybody. I can't make anybody more spiritually mature. I can't help people stop being addicted to whatever besetting sin is destroying them. I can't heal marriages or bring families into greater unity or honestly really do anything eternal, spiritual, and profound. Now, you might be thinking, oh, he's just being humble or whatever. Uh, I'm not. I'm just echoing the statements of Jesus and Paul in the Bible. What I just said is based on the rock-solid teaching of Jesus. For instance, in John 15, 4 and 5, where he says, Remain in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. I am that branch. That's me. And I'm absolutely incapable of producing anything good apart from Jesus. Adding this together with what Paul is saying, it appears that the time where God moves strongest in and through us will not be the times when we are at our healthiest, wealthiest, most charismatic, most able and strongest, but at the times when we are weakest. I like how Martin Luther sort of wrestles with this truth when he says, It is a strange sort of strength which is weak and by its weakness grows stronger. Who ever heard of weak strength? Or more more absurd still, that strength is increased by weakness. Paul would here make a distinction between human strength and divine. Human strength increases with enhancement and decreases with enfeeblement. But God's power, his word in us, rises in proportion to the pressure it receives. I also like how Pastor John Piper expands on this dynamic too. And he also answers a question that you might be wondering about. How would a loving and all-powerful God allow a much weaker Satan to attack one of God's great servants in Paul? Here's what John Piper says. Now, where did this hardship come from? Paul calls it a messenger of Satan given to harass him. So one clear answer is that some weaknesses come from Satan. Satan afflicts the children of God through his angels or messengers. His aim is destruction and death and misery. But it's not that simple, is it? Satan is not the only one at work here. God is at work too. This thorn is not just the work of Satan to destroy. It is the work of God to save. We know this for two reasons. First, because Paul describes the purpose for the thorn in terms of preventing pride. But Satan's whole design is to produce pride, not prevent it. That's how he kills, either with pride in what we've done or despair over what we haven't done. Paul's revelations in paradise made him vulnerable to pride and self-exaltation. So God uses 
the hostile intentions of Satan for Paul's holiness. Satan wanted to make Paul miserable and turn him away from the faith and the ministry and the value of the visions he had seen, but God wanted to make Paul humble and turn him away from pride and self-exaltation, so God appointed the thorn of Satan for the work of salvation. The other reason we know the thorn is God's work and not just Satan is that when Paul prays in verse 8 that God would take the thorn away, the Lord says, no, because my power is made perfect in this weakness. In other words, I have a purpose, Paul, in what is happening to you. This is not ultimately Satan's destroying work. It is ultimately, and most importantly, my saving, sanctifying work, just like it was with Job. God permits Satan to afflict his righteous servant and turns the affliction of God for his good purposes. So the answer to our question is that the source of our weaknesses may sometimes be Satan and his destructive designs for us, but always our weaknesses are designed by God for our good. This is why the truth of God's sovereign grace is so precious. In the midst of hardship and calamity, God is in control of Satan. Satan does nothing to God's children that God does not design with infinite skill and love for our good. Which brings us to the final question, which we have already answered. What is the purpose of these weaknesses? Is there a goal or an aim for why the weaknesses come? Why do we have insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities and troubles? Why can't I find a job? Why am I trapped in this awful marriage? Why does my dad have cancer? Why do I have cancer? Why can't I have children? Why do I have no friends? Why can't I get married? Why is nothing working in my life? Paul gives three brief answers about his own experience, and I think they are tremendously important for us to live by too. First, he says that Satan has the purpose to buffet you or harass you, and so it's okay to pray for relief. That's what Paul did until he got word from the Lord. Pain is not a good thing in itself. God does not delight in your suffering. I'll say that again. God does not delight in your and my suffering. Satan does, however, and he must be resisted. Second, God's purpose over and through Satan's harassment is our humility. Paul was in danger of pride and self-exaltation, and God took steps to keep him humble. This is an utterly strange thing in our self-saturated age. God thinks humility is far more important than comfort. I'm going to read that again because that's excellent. God thinks our humility is far more important than our comfort. Humility is more important than freedom from pain. He will give us a mountaintop experience in paradise and then bring us through anguish of soul, lest we think that we have risen above the need for total reliance on his grace. So his purpose is our humility and lowliness and reliance on him. Finally, God's purpose in our weaknesses is to glorify the grace and power of his son. This is the main point of verses 9 and 10 where Jesus says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's design is to make you a showcase for Jesus' power, but not necessarily the way that humanity demands not by getting rid of all of our weaknesses, but by giving strength to endure and even rejoice in tribulation. Let God be God here. If he wills to show the perfection of his son's power in our weakness instead of by our escape from weakness, then he knows best. Trust him. Hebrews 11 is a good guide here. It says that by faith, some escaped the edge of the sword, and by faith, some were killed by the sword. By 
faith, some stopped the mouths of lions, and by faith, others were sawn in two. By faith, some were mighty in war, and by faith, others suffered chains and imprisonment. The ultimate purpose of God in our weakness is to glorify the kind of power that moved Christ to the cross and kept him there until the work of love was done. Paul said that Christ crucified was foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews, but to those who are called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen and amen. Wise words and difficult words from Pastor John. We continue with 2 Samuel 19, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. It was reported to Joab, the king is weeping, he's mourning over Absalom. That day's victory was turned into mourning for all the troops, because on that day the troops heard the king is grieving over his son. So they returned to the city quietly that day, like troops come in when they are humiliated after fleeing in battle. But the king covered his face and cried loudly, My son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have shamed all your soldiers, those who saved your life as well as your sons, your wives, and your concubines by loving your enemies and hating those who love you. Today you have made it clear that the commanders and soldiers mean nothing to you. In fact, today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, it would be fine with you. Now get up. Go out and encourage your soldiers, for I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will remain with you tonight. This will be worse for you than all the trouble that has come to you from your youth until now. So the king got up and sat in the city gate, and all the people were told, Look, the king is sitting in the city gate. Then they all came into the king's presence. Meanwhile, each Israelite had fled to his tent. People throughout all the tribes of Israel were arguing among themselves, saying, The king rescued us from the grasp of our enemies, and he saved us from the grasp of the Philistines, but now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, the man we anointed over us, has died in battle, so why do you say nothing about restoring the king? King David sent word to the priests Zadok and Abiathar, Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to restore the king to his palace? The talk of all of Israel has reached the king at his house. You are my brothers, my flesh and blood, so why would you be the last to restore the king? And tell Amasa, aren't you my flesh and blood? May God punish me and do so severely if you don't become commander of my army from now on instead of Joab. So he won over all the men of Judah, and they unanimously sent word to the king, Come back, you and all your servants. Then the king returned. When he arrived at the Jordan, Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and escort him across the Jordan. Shammai, son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men from Benjamin with him. Ziba, an attendant from the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and twenty servants, also rushed down to the Jordan ahead of the king. They forded the Jordan to bring the king's household across and do whatever the king desired. When Shammai, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, He fell face down before the king and said to him, My lord, don't hold me guilty and don't remember your servant's wrongdoing on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king not take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. But look, today I am the first one of the entire house of Joseph to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, son of Zariah, asked, Shouldn't Shammai be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? David answered, Sons of Zariah, do we agree on anything? Have you become my adversary today? Should any man be killed in Israel today? Am I not aware that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shammai, You will not die. Then the king gave him his oath. 
Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet, trimmed his mustache, or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Mephibosheth, why didn't you come with me? My lord the king, he replied, my servant Ziba betrayed me. Actually, your servant said, I'll saddle the donkey for myself so that I may ride it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. Ziba slandered your servant to the my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God, so do whatever you think best. For my grandfather's entire family deserves death from my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. So what further right do I have to keep on making appeals to the king? The king said to him, Why keep on speaking about these matters of yours? I hereby declare you and Zeba are to divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, Instead, since my lord the king has come to his palace safely, let Zeba take it all. Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim and accompanied the king to the Jordan River to see him off at the Jordan. Barzillai was a very old man, 80 years old, And since he was a very wealthy man, he had provided for the needs of the king while he stayed in Mahanaim. The king said to Barzillai, Cross over with me, and I'll provide for you at my side in Jerusalem. Barzillai replied to the king, How many years of my life are left that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I am now eighty years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or drinks? Can I still hear the voice of male and female singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Since your servant is only going with the king a little way across the Jordan, why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return so that I may die in my own city near the tomb of my father and mother. But here is your servant Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king. And do for him what seems good to you. The king replied, Chimham will cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you, and whatever you desire from me I will do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan, and then the king crossed. The king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and Barzillai returned to his home. The king went to Gilgal, and Chimham went with him. All the troops of Judah and half of Israel escorted the king. Suddenly all the men of Israel came to the king, They asked him, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, take you away secretly and transport the king and his household across the Jordan along with all of David's men? All the men of Judah responded to the men of Israel, Because the king is our relative. Why does this make you angry? Have we ever eaten anything of the king's or been honored at all? The men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, so we have a greater claim to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Weren't we the first to speak of restoring our king? But the words of the men of Judah were harsher than those of the men of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 26 verse 1. In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, because Tyre said about Jerusalem, Aha! The gateway to the peoples is shattered. She has been turned over to me. I will now be filled now that she lies in ruins. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. See, I am against you, Tyre. I will raise up many nations against you just as the sea raises its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and demolish her towers. I will scrape the soil from her and turn her into a bare rock. She will become a place in the sea to spread nets, for I have spoken. This is the declaration of the Lord God. She will become plunder for the nations, and her villages on the mainland will be slaughtered by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. For this is what the Lord God says, See, I am about to bring King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, king of kings against Tyre, from the north with horses, chariots, cavalry, and a huge assembly of troops. He will slaughter your villages on the mainland with a sword. He will set up siege works, build a ramp, and raise up a wall of shields against you. 
He will direct the blows of his battering rams against your walls and tear down your towers with his iron tools. His horses will be so numerous that their dust will cover you. When he enters your gates as an army entering a breached city, your walls will shake from the noise of cavalry, wagons, and chariots. He will trample all your streets with the hooves of his horses. He will slaughter your people with the sword, and your mighty pillars will fall to the ground. They will take your wealth as spoil and plunder your merchandise. They will also demolish your walls and tear down your beautiful homes. Then they will throw your stones, timber, and soil into the water. I will put an end to the noise of your songs, and the sound of your lyres will no longer be heard. I will turn you into a bare rock, and you will be a place to spread nets. You will never be rebuilt, for I, the Lord, have spoken. This is the declaration of the Lord God. This is what the Lord God says to Tyre. Won't the coasts and islands quake at the sound of your downfall when the wounded groan and slaughter occurs within you? All the princes of the sea will descend from their thrones, remove their robes, and strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground, tremble continually, and be appalled at you. Then they will lament for you and say of you how you have perished, city of renown, you who were populated from the sea, she who was powerful on the sea, she and all her inhabitants inflicting their inflicted their terror. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your downfall. The islands in the sea are alarmed by your demise. For this is what the Lord God says, When I make you a ruined city like other deserted cities, when I raise up the deep against you so that the mighty waters cover you, then I will bring you down to be with those who descend to the pit, to the people of antiquity. I will make you dwell in the underworld like the ancient ruins with those who descend to the pit, so that you will no longer be inhabited or display your splendor in the land of the living. I will make you an object of horror, and you will no longer exist. You will be sought, but you will never be found again. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Psalm chapter 74, verse 1. Why have you rejected us forever, God? Why does your anger burn against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you purchased long ago and redeemed as the tribe for your own possession. Remember Mount Zion, where you dwell. Make your way to the perpetual ruins, to all that the enemy has destroyed in the sanctuary. Your adversaries roared in the meeting place where you met with us. They set up their emblems as signs. It was like men in a thicket of trees wielding axes, then smashing all the carvings with hatchets and picks. They set your sanctuary on fire. They utterly desecrated the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, let's oppress them relentlessly. They burned every place throughout the land where God met with us. There are no signs for us to see. There is no longer a prophet, and none of us knows how long this will last. God, how long will the enemy mock? Will the foe insult your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand? Stretch out your right hand and destroy them. God, my king, is from ancient times, performing saving acts on the earth. You divided the sea with your strength. You smashed the heads of the sea monsters in the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You fed him to the creatures of the desert. You opened up springs and streams. You dried up ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, also the night. You established the moon and the sun. You set all the boundaries of the earth. You made summer and winter. Remember this, the enemy has mocked the Lord, and a foolish people has insulted your name. Do not give to beasts the life of your dove. Do not forgive, forget the lives of your poor people forever. Consider the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of violence. Do not let the oppressed turn away in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, God. Champion your cause. Remember the insults that fools bring against you all day long. 
Do not forget the clamor of your adversaries, the tumult of your opponents that goes up constantly. Amen. Blessed be his name. Good day, friends, and Godspeed to you.